I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We started a series some months ago on uh, spiritual maturity. And uh, we've looked at uh, different uh, things that the Bible has to say about it. We've used as a text scripture the fourth chapter of Ephesians. And so we want to uh, uh, kind of hook on to some things that we started last week. If you weren't here with us last week, we talked a little bit about the kingdom of God. We'll, we'll recap just a little bit. But uh, this morning we want to go a little bit further in what the Bible says about uh, one of the characteristics of spiritual maturity. In other words, what you and I will need to know if we're going to be mature in the things of God. So in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, it says, Wherefore he, it saith, he saith, when he, Jesus, ascended upon high, <clears throat> excuse me, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now verse 11 tells us what those gifts were. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. We know those as the ministry gifts. So Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God in a place of power, a position of power, gave the ministry gifts, and he tells us what for. For the perfecting or the maturing of the saints. For or to do. In other words, the saints are supposed to mature in order to do the work of the ministry so that the edifying of the body of Christ can take place. So he talks about a progression. He says he gave gifts to men so that Christians the average believer could mature so that the average believer could go do the work of Jesus so that the body of Christ would be built up and edified. Now, folks, that doesn't just mean get people saved. It means to encourage people. It means to teach them. Whether you know it or not, everybody should be a teacher. <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean God has said everybody in the church is a teacher. But everybody can teach something that they know from the Word themselves. You can always teach what you've learned from God for yourself. And folks, that's the best teaching there is. Because if you do that, nobody's going to say, well, those preachers, you can't ever trust them. They're going to say, wow, that worked for you? You're going to be able to make contact with some people that nobody else ever will. And that's what it's talking about. Thank God for church. But God's plan is not to get everybody saved in church. God's plan is for church to be the place where believers are built up and edified and, and learn more about the Word so that they can grow and mature, so that they can go out and reach people in their lives. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll get this out. That's God's plan. God's plan is not to have worldwide revival meetings so everybody comes to the altar. Okay. <clears throat> That's the way people want to think that it's supposed to work. Because see, then there's no responsibility for the individual. And I don't know if you've realized this or not. I hope this is not true in your case. But my experience is, for the most part, Christians run from responsibility. For whatever reason. Maybe they think they've got enough responsibility in the, 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 the part of their life that doesn't have to do with God in the church. They don't want any responsibility. The Bible says it's all about responsibility. Jesus said very clearly, and He wasn't just talking to those that were in ministry. He said, the works that I do shall you do also. And even greater works than, than these shall you do because I go to my Father. He's not saying, okay, this is just for the twelve. He's saying this is for everybody. This is what is expected because now you and I are in the body of Christ. Because you and I are in the family of God. You're supposed to use what you've got to help somebody else. Now that rarely goes over very big. I get that. I understand that. That's why I keep saying it. Because sooner or later it's going to sink in. You're going to wake up one morning dreaming, I'm supposed to go do something. I just prophesied that over you. <laughs> That's the way the Bible says it's supposed to work. Now, how long is it supposed to work that way? Well, the next verse tells us. It says, Till we all come into the unity of the faith and into the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, folks, I would love for this to mean till everybody believes like I believe. But that's not what it means. The unity of the faith is talking about when we're all gathered unto Jesus when He comes back for the church in the rapture. In other words, he's saying this is the way it's supposed to work until the end of the church age. Well, that makes sense. What ministry gifts are you going to need after the church age is over? I certainly don't want to go to heaven and try to teach. Can you imagine sitting there with Jesus in your crowd and do it, trying to teach? No, thank you. It's talking about the church age. It's talking about this is the way it's going to work until Jesus comes back for the church. Till we all come into the unity of the faith. Now, what will cause us to have, be in the unity of the faith? I wish that was where we were all agreeing in, uh, would agree in doctrine. 
But that's not what he means. That's never going to happen. It's just never going to happen. So what does he mean? Till we all come to the unity of the faith, unto the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect or a mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, folks, remember the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, we will see as we are see, seen and know as we are known. The veil will be taken off of our face and we will see him as he is. In other words, doctrinal differences will pretty much vanish instantly. When we get to heaven, when, when we see Jesus in the air, not even, even before we get to heaven, when we see Jesus in the air, those people that didn't believe in the rapture, who have just been raptured, That's not going to be an issue anymore. <laughs> Those people that believe in the post-tribulation rapture, who were just raptured before the tribulation begins, that's not going to be an issue anymore. So there's a lot of things that just seeing Jesus, just the appearance of Jesus, there are a lot of things that that's going to fix instantly. We are all going to be in the unity of the faith. Nobody's going to look down and say, Oh, if only I'd had time to do that one other thing. Nobody's going to care. At that moment, we will be unified in the faith. But the Bible doesn't say that that's what it'll take for us to be unified. It says you can grow in the knowledge of Him and mature so that those things are not a surprise to you. For some, it will be. For some, they've heard of the rapture of the church and it's like a fairy tale to them. And so that'll be a, a big surprise for them, but it doesn't have to be for you. Why? Because God gave us His Word and he gave us the ministry gifts so that we could grow up and mature here. Now, folks, there are always going to be baby Christians on the earth. Always. There are always going to be people in the body of Christ who are not doing it what God wants for them to do. They're not fulfilling their place in his family because they don't know. So what does that mean? That means you and I are going to have to double up. That means you and I are going to have to be conscious of and effectually working toward the maturity that God wants us to have so that we can do the work that needs to be done. You know as well as I do, if you've got a newborn baby in the house, you don't put much responsibility on them. They just become the responsibility of others in the household now. Well, that's part of the responsibility we have in the body of Christ too. So what does he say? Till we all come to the unity of faith, unto the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice it's knowledge that causes you to grow. It's knowledge that causes you to mature in Christ. Unto the knowledge of the Son of God, unto, here's God's plan, here's His ideal, unto a perfect, that word perfect means mature man. Well, what does a mature man look like to Jesus or to God? Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, it means just as Jesus told His disciples, He that has seen me has seen the Father. God's plan for spiritual maturity is for us to be able to live, whether we ever claim it or not, to live in such a way that God can say, He that's seen this guy has seen me. He that's seen you has seen the Father. That means doing the same works that Jesus did. That's why He told us we would. That means showing the same character that Jesus did. That's why the Bible tells us to grow in the character of Christ. To exemplify everything in our life, in our words, in our actions that would be just what Jesus would do. Remember the saying, what would Jesus do? Well, the question is, what are you going to do? The Bible tells us what Jesus would do. What are you going to do? The Bible tells us that God's, uh, God's idea, God's picture of a perfect or a spiritually mature man is somebody that would do the same things that the Bible shows us that Jesus does. Now, why does God want this to happen? Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children. So there are such things as spiritual children. Paul tells us so by the Holy Ghost. There are spiritual children and then there are spiritually mature believers, or we might say adults. That we be henceforth, henceforth be no more children. Now, what are characteristics of children? He mentions one, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Notice what he says. He says the two characteristics of spiritual children that are mentioned here is that they're constantly moving back and forth. Why? Because of wrong doctrines that they accept and because of the deceitfulness of men that they buy into. Growing up spiritually, maturing spiritually will cause you to not be tossed back and forth 
by wrong doctrine. You'll be steady. You'll be established. You'll be unmovable. To be spiritually mature means you won't be caught up in the deceitfulness of men that moves you off the position and the place that you should be. Let me ask you a question. How many people do you know of or have you ever heard stories of that have had these prophecies given to them that wound up costing them lots of money? Somebody prophesied this, that, or the other, and it cost them lots of money. Folks, I could tell you story after story after story till nightfall and still not exhaust the stories. Well, what is that? That's people being caught up by the deceitfulness of men. Now, in some cases, people intended to do it. In other places, the, the individuals prophesying were deceived themselves. Still deceitfulness. So God wants you to mature spiritually, grow up spiritually, so that you be unmovable. So that you're able to identify wrong doctrine and not get taken up by it. So that you're able to identify the deceitfulness of men and not be taken away, not carried away by it. That's God's plan. By the way, notice how it connects that with the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Jesus wasn't fooled by people. When the people came to Jesus and they tried to trick him, they brought him a piece of uh, a coin and they, they said, uh, you know, what, um, uh, uh, should we pay taxes? Should we honor Caesar? And Jesus called for a coin. He said, whose image is on it? He knew what they were after. He knew they were trying to trap him. But because he was unmovable, he didn't fall for any of it. One of the Pharisees' biggest disappointments was that they were never able to trip him up with his words. Okay, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But, here's the contrast, here's spiritually mature characteristics. But, speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, folks, notice that first phrase, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. The characteristic of a spiritually mature individual is that they speak the truth in love. Two things that are identified. The truth has to be the Word of God. Jesus said in His prayer in John chapter 17, He said, Sanctify them, talking about the disciples, and also those that would believe on Him through their Word. That's you and me. He said, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Now, Jesus wouldn't say in John chapter 17 that the Word is truth. And then over in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, inspired by the Holy Ghost, talk about truth being something else. If the truth is the Word of God in John chapter 17, then the truth in Ephesians chapter 4 has to be the Word of God. So what is the characteristic that he speaks of that Paul identifies by the Holy Ghost? What is the characteristic of a spiritually mature individual? He speaks the Word. Now, folks, all those people in the body of Christ that have a problem with this confession thing, spiritually mature believers speak the Word. which shows you why the church is in such a mess. Because people are speaking everything else except the Word. And in many cases they're saying, well, yeah, I know the Bible says this, but... Spiritually mature individuals speak the truth, speak the Word, and they do it in love. It's not enough just to say the Word, but the attitude behind it has to be love. Now, what would... We expect God to, to want for us if we, if our desire is, well, let me just ask a question. How many of you want to mature, grow up and mature spiritually? Okay, those of you that don't, we need to pray for you. That's why I asked you to identify yourself. That should be the desire of every believer, right? All right, well, how are we going to do that? Well, look at the, the prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul prays that we would know certain things. Now, this is a prayer that the Holy Ghost inspired him to pray. It's a prayer that the Holy Ghost saved for us so that we would know. So it's got to be pretty important. And Paul said he prayed this for them all the time. He said, I cease not to give thanks for you. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. He said, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Well, if he doesn't cease to do it, that means he continues to do it. So he's saying he's praying this thing all the time for these guys. If you look at the letters that Paul wrote to the other churches, you'll find out that he says pretty much the same thing. He uses different terminology, but he prays pretty much the same prayer for every church. He elaborates a little bit more to the Ephesians. That's why we use this one to, to look at. But he prays the same thing for the Colossians. He prays the same thing for the Philippians. He just condenses it and uses a little bit different terminology, but it's the same, same basic information. 
So he says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now remember, spiritual maturity is growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. Now he's praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Well, if you know about God, you're going to have to know about Jesus. can't know God any other way except through Jesus. That's why the Old Testament is superseded by the New Testament. The Old Testament was about information regarding God. The New Testament is about what Jesus did to fulfill the Old Covenant. So if you're going to know about God, you've got to know about Jesus. That's what makes Christianity different from any other religion or philosophy or doctrine on the face of the earth. It's the only thing that says God will live in you. Islam doesn't claim that. Islam, nobody says God's living in me and that's why I'm doing all this stuff. I'm killing people because God's living in me. Now they're trying to satisfy their God by doing whatever they think they ought to do. Buddhism, Confucianism, all these things is trying to attain a higher level of consciousness. It has nothing to do with God living on the inside of you. It has to do with man working to try to gain some place where he can be on an equal plane with some kind of God like whatever they claim it to be. Christianity is different from anything else because it's the only thing that says you can have the life of God in you and that's why Jesus said, I'm the only way to the Father. He didn't say, I'm one of many ways. He did not have an Oprah theology. He didn't say there are many paths to God. He said, I'm the only way. That's it. Folks, I want you to understand, Jesus was pretty intolerant where the religions are concerned. He said, I'm it. Nowadays, there's so much pressure on people. Well, we need to be tolerant of all beliefs and all religions and all ideas. Forget that noise. We need to be like Jesus and say, Jesus is the only way. Now, you other folks have a right to be wrong. If you want to go to hell, you can. But Jesus is the only way. That just infuriates people when I say things like that. So he's praying that God would give unto them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. How's that going to happen? The eyes of your understanding, literally it means the eyes of your spirit being enlightened or opened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Three things. Know three things. If you're going to grow in the things of God, if you're going to live up to the prayer that the Holy Ghost prayed, inspired Paul to pray, you're going to have to live up to three things. To know the hope of this calling. That means God's plan for your life. Never going to be satisfied if you don't find God's plan for your life. You can chase anything and everything out there. And nothing will ever satisfy you until you find God's plan for your life. Secondly, that you would know what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. You're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to walk in the fullness of the things of God until you find out what belongs to you. That's what your inheritance is. It's what belongs to you in Christ. Thirdly, that you would know what is the exceeding greatness of His power that works in you as a believer. You're never going to be able to overcome and walk in victory in life if you don't know the power of God that you already have. If you're praying for more power, you're wasting your prayer. The key is to know the power you have now. You don't need more power. You've got the power you need now. But if you don't know you've got the power you need now, how can you walk in the power you need, that, you, that you have need of? So what's he saying? He's saying that we've got to know God's plan for our lives, what belongs to us, and the power that works in us. That's a part of, that's a key to growing up spiritually, to developing spiritual maturity. Now we talked a little bit last week, got started last week on the inheritance part. Now... Uh, Better look at Colossians chapter 1. Look with me to Colossians chapter 1 real quick. Paul uses a little different terminology that I think will be helpful for us to see in this context. Here's the prayer that he prays for the Colossians. Beginning in chapter 1 verse 9. For this cause we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you. So he's praying this for them all the time too. And to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Different words, but same thing he's talking about to the Ephesians. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. There's power again. Unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Talking about the same stuff, isn't he? Now notice that verse 12. Who has made us able. 
to be partakers of the inheritance. It doesn't say that you're automatically going to be a partaker of it. It says He's made you able to be partakers of it. Whether you partake of it is up to you. Whether you partake of it is going to be your choice, not God's. He's given you the ability to partake of it, and that comes through the knowledge of the Son of God. But whether or not you do partake of it is entirely up to you, folks. And that's the reason why the church is in such a childlike babyhood stage of spiritual development. We've been made able to be partakers, but the ministry gifts are not doing their job to teach people what belongs to us so that we can take hold of it. That's why you can't tell much difference in the church in the world. That's why the church seems to have the same problems that the unsaved have. Because they haven't been taught what belongs to them so they can take hold of it. If you don't know what's yours, you can't apply what's yours. You can't appropriate it. Now notice again verse 12, who has made us able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who, verse 13, has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Where is your inheritance? It's in the kingdom of Jesus. Or we might say the kingdom of God. Some places in the Bible it refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. It's talking about a spiritual kingdom. It's talking about that which belongs to you because of something that has happened to you. Now what happened to you to make you able to partake of the inheritance? You got saved. So the inheritance is for the believer, not for the world. It's for the believer. And the act of salvation brought you into the place where you're able to partake. In other words, the Bible is the notification. It's the reading of the will of God saying, here's what's yours. But you still have to take hold of it. Now, the Bible says a lot of things about the kingdom of God. Jesus told His disciples, both the 12 and the 70, in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10, He said, go heal the sick, and when you heal them, say the kingdom of God is coming to you. So healing's got to be a part of the kingdom of God. At least Jesus thought so. I'm not sure what other people think, but Jesus thought so. Then there was another time where Jesus cast the devil out of somebody, and they accused Him of doing it by the power of the devil. And Jesus said, well, that's not the way it works. Every kingdom divided against itself shall fall. And if Satan is casting out Satan, then he shall fall. His, his kingdom is destined to, to, to ruin. But then he said, but if I cast out devils by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. So he said that casting out devils or deliverance is part of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know what other people think, but Jesus thought that deliverance was part of the kingdom of God. That's why he said so. Then on another occasion, Jesus talks about looking at the birds of the air. He said, they don't work. God takes care of them. He feeds them. He said, look at the lilies of the field. He said, they don't uh, toil. They don't uh, spin clothes. But nobody is arrayed as beautifully as God fixes the flowers. He said, just in the same way, if God's going to take care of the birds of the air and the, 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 uh, the grass that withers and, and uh, flowers and withers away, I think is the way it says it. He said, how much more shall God feed and clothe you? So what is he saying? He went further to say, seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you because it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So what does that mean? That means material possessions is part of the kingdom of God. That means provision is part of the kingdom of God. Now, now I know a lot of the church doesn't believe so, but Jesus said so. You decide whose side you want to be on, but Jesus said it was part of the kingdom of God. So what do we do? Do we pursue the, the, the healing? Do we pursue the deliverance? Do we pursue the, the material possessions? No, Jesus said in Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Now a lot of folks get real spiritual at that point. They'll say, well, yeah, you don't want to pursue those things. We pursue the kingdom of God. But what do they mean when they do that? When they get that far away look in their eye, what do they mean? From what I can see, the way most people live, they're just waiting to get to heaven and then something, expecting something to happen. But if that's the case, how is it that God made us able to be partakers of the saints, the inheritance of the saints now? He didn't say God will make you able when you get to heaven. He said God has made you able. So what do these people mean that want to get super spiritual and say, well, yeah, see, healing's not important. It is to the sick. Well, material possessions, that's not important. It is if you don't have anything. And deliverance, that's not a big deal in the body of Christ. Well, it is if you need to be set free. 
That's why Jesus dealt with people on those levels. Because God cared about it. I know the church doesn't much, but God cared about it. So what do they mean by that? Seek first the kingdom of God. How are you going to do that? How are you going to pursue a kingdom that you can't see? Paul gives you the answer in Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 and verse 17. You want to seek first the kingdom of God, you're going to have to chase after these three things. Paul said, writing to the church in Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, there, the context is people were, were all in a, in, in, you know, concerned about should we eat meat that's been offered to idols. The culture of the day was that they would make idols, uh, animal sacrifices to false gods and then take those meats out to the marketplace and provide them for food for everybody. You know, the, the temples would sell it to the, to the retailers out in the marketplace or something like that. And then people would come along and buy food for themselves, but then they're buying meat that's been offered to idols. And people got all concerned about that. Does that mean that we're disobeying God? Does that mean that we are betraying Him? Does that mean we're joining in with these other idols to whom this meat was sacrificed and stuff? Paul's saying it doesn't matter. Forget it. It's not an important point. People get all concerned about all kinds of things that don't really matter. He said the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Romans 14, verse 17. Well, if it's not meat and drink, Paul, in other words, if it's not about rules, if it's not about keeping laws, if it's not about doing the right thing so God doesn't get mad at you, what is the kingdom of God about? What is this kingdom supposed to be that we're supposed to pursue and seek after? He said the, meat and, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Well, what is it then? It is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. If you're going to seek the kingdom of God, you're going to have to seek after those three things. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, I want you to look back with me to one of my favorite scriptures. This has been one of my favorite scriptures since I was a kid, and I never understood why. In Isaiah 54 and verse 14, I want you to see something. Isaiah 54, verse 14. I don't know even when I found this scripture must have been in some kind of devotional thing. That's all I ever read of the Bible as a kid and growing up in the church. But I found this scripture and something about that, there's something about my heart that attached to this scripture. And I never understood it. It didn't make sense to me, but I loved it. And I could not understand why. Looking back at it now, I see this Holy Ghost trying to teach me something. But I wasn't mature enough, didn't know enough about the things of God to get it. In righteousness thou shalt be established. The word established means unmovable. Now, isn't that exactly what we just read over in Ephesians chapter 4, that God wants us to mature, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, and by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive? He's saying that spiritual children are tossed to and fro. But in righteousness, you shall be unmovable. In righteousness, you shall be, it will be impossible. There's no way that wrong doctrine or deceitfulness of men shall take you off center. And notice he says, it's righteousness that causes you to be fixed and established. Unmovable. Can I ask you a question? When do we become righteous? Most of the church world looks at it in two stages. Well, we become righteous when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives. That's when God gives us righteousness. Yeah, we understand that. But then the church, religion, has given us this idea that somehow or another we just are supposed to grow and progress. And if we get old enough and walk with God long enough, then some way or another then we'll attain to something that the Bible calls righteousness. Folks, I want you to understand something. There is no place, you cannot find any place in Scripture that tells you to grow in righteousness. You know why? Because you can't. You cannot grow in righteousness. Then what is this idea that we seem to have that if we just stick with it long enough, somehow or another it'll happen? If you can't grow in righteousness, then what are we waiting for? What are we thinking that someday we'll wake up and it'll just all of a sudden be there? That's not how it works. And you know as well as I know that if getting saved was the righteousness and the end all of righteousness that there is to it, then the church would be a whole lot different group of people than we are. Look at how many people are tossed back and forth in the church. 
Paul's writing to Christians saying, well, I don't want you to be. The Holy Ghost doesn't want you to be tossed back and forth. Well, aren't they already righteous? Or aren't they saved? Then there's got to be something to, to it that we're not taking advantage of. There's got to be a part of our inheritance that we're not yet partaking of if we've got the idea that somehow in the future this righteousness thing is just going to happen. It's a slow process, day by day by day. Well, most of those days that people are looking at are days going backwards and not forwards. How's that ever going to get you anywhere? In righteousness thou shalt be established, for oppression shall be far from thee. For thou shalt not fear. Now, folks, look at the progression that it talks about. It's saying people are moved because they're oppressed. It's oppression that moves you and keeps you from being firmly fixed and established. Well, what causes oppression? Fear. Fear opens the door to oppression, which causes you to be somebody that's tossed back and forth. Which is the exact opposite of what God intends for you to be. He goes even further and he says, and Al-Qaeda shall not come near you either. That's about all we think of as terror nowadays. What's he mean? He means sudden calamity. That's what the word terror means. Sudden calamity or sudden destruction. He says righteousness and being established in righteousness keeps you from oppression and keeps you from sudden destruction. Why? Because you're not afraid. Folks, look at how much of the church world is not even sure if they're saved from day to day. Look at how much of the church world is afraid they've done something wrong and, and offended God and now the Holy Ghost has left them and, and all this other kind of stuff. Well, yeah, that's what Jesus said. And I'll pray the Father and He'll give you another comforter that He'll come and go. No, that He'll abide with you forever. But the way most Christians, or some Christians read that anyway, is that the Holy Ghost will come and go depending on whether or not God is mad at you based on how good you've been so that you won't even know if you're saved from one day to the next. That's not what Jesus said. He said the Holy Ghost will abide with you forever. He'll abide with you forever. That means He can't come and go. Now, folks, every Christian knows that after you're saved, it doesn't stop you from sinning. It doesn't stop you from the desire of your flesh to sin. Paul talked about this as being his issue. Romans chapter 7, he said, man, what a mess I'm in. He says, from the inside, from my heart, I want to serve God. The, the real me on the inside wants to serve God. But man, from the outside, my body is doing things that my, my spirit doesn't want to do. He says, what a mess I'm in. Who's going to deliver me from this? He said, I see two laws. On the law of, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, Romans 7.22. He said, but in my flesh there's another law operating that's pulling me into wrong things. It's pulling me into the same wrong things that I did before I ever knew Jesus. Every Christian that's honest will tell you that that is the struggle of the Christian life. Well, what's the point? Why is Paul telling us? Is he just trying to commiserate with us? Hey, man, I know how it is. It's tough out there, isn't it? What's he doing? He's trying to teach us how to overcome. So what does he say? He starts off in Romans... Uh, you better turn over to Romans chapter 8. I thought I was just going to kind of skim over this, but you need to see some of these things. Let me make this statement while you're turning there. I personally believe, this is my personal opinion, you can throw this away, you judge it for whatever you think it's worth, I don't care. You do whatever you want to with this, but I'm going to tell you my personal opinion. And I always try to tell you if it's my opinion when I tell you. I'm not telling you this is Bible. I'm not telling you this is God. You judge it for yourself. But my personal opinion is this. Christians, by and large, fail to walk in righteousness. Now, please understand, big difference. I'll show you the difference between being righteous and walking in righteousness. Big difference. That's the distinction that Paul makes. In my opinion, Christians fail to walk in righteousness for two reasons. Number one, they don't know what it is. And number two, they don't know how to apply it. And neither of those problems have to do with the flesh. My opinion. Paul identifies in chapter 7. If all you had in Ro of the Bible was Romans chapter 7, you'd think, what's the use? 
Even Paul is having this same struggle. He said, I find my thing, myself doing things that my heart condemns. And then the things that my heart wants to do, my flesh won't do it. Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? He's saying, I'm being captured. I'm being bound. I'm saved. I'm already in the ministry. But I'm being captured and captivated and held in bondage by the desire of my flesh. In other words, I am oppressed by sin. What does that mean? That means if we leave Paul in chapter 7, he's not established in righteousness. But the whole purpose of him telling us about his experience is so that we could learn to, to walk in victory and gain victory just like he did. What is the key to victory? Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Notice the last part of the verse. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Folks, if you go back and you look, don't take my word for this, study it out for yourself. You go back and you look, you'll find that that phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, is not in verse 1. It is in verse 4. Why was it placed in verse 1? It wasn't in the original manuscripts in verse 1. Why was it placed in verse 1? Folks, all I can give you is a guess. Translations are always based on two things. The translator's knowledge of the language and the translator's understanding of God. Any Bible translation, King James included, is going to be based on two things. The translator's knowledge of of the language that they're translating and the translator's understanding of God. Because you can know the language and have a wrong understanding of God and still communicate the wrong things. That seems to be what happened in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Because there is no way that you can conclude that Paul is saying it's about works. In other words, walking after the Spirit. Your ability to walk in God's pleasure that determines whether or not you're condemned. You can't come up with that. If that's the case, then we've got to throw away the book of Galatians. Because he says it's not by works, it's by faith. You've got to throw away the book of 1 Corinthians. Because he talks about it's not about works, it's about faith. Every, you've got to throw away Paul's ministry. Because everything he did was about not works, but by faith. That can't be what he's saying in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. What is he saying? He is saying Jesus is the deliverer from the, the conflict between who you are on the inside and the actions of your flesh. That's the distinction that Paul makes. You are not who what you do. You are who God made you. I hate using this example. It offends me when I use this example, but I don't know of a better one to use. I was made a man. I was born that way. If I dress up like a woman, it doesn't change the fact that I'm made a man. Ew. <laughs> what I do doesn't change who I am. I could even have a sex change operation. One could even have a sex change operation. (laughs) And it still wouldn't change what they were made. Big difference between who you are and what you do. That's what Paul identifies. What does he say? He says, here's how Jesus delivers you from the body of this death. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation... To them that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he also tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If any man be, unless not, Paul tells us, where is it? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, behold, all things become new. What happens? You are made righteous. You can't change the fact that you were made righteous by acting unrighteously. Now you can correct the unrighteous action or behavior. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible. If we confess our sin, he's talking to Christians, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He didn't say he'll cleanse us from not being righteous. He says he'll cleanse us from unrighteous action. Folks, if my wife and I get in a fight, I don't stop being married. We've broken fellowship. She may have to ask me to forgive her. (laughs) 
But we don't stop being married. The relationship is still there, even if she messes up. The relationship with God is still there, even if you mess up. So what's the answer? There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Folks, please understand something. Righteousness, the Bible says righteousness is a gift. It says you access that gift. Romans chapter 10, verse 10 says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. The gift of righteousness is accessed by faith. What is the principle of faith? Believe in the heart and say with the mouth. Righteousness is activated or accessed by faith. You get saved and become righteous by faith, by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. What makes anybody think that that's how you stop, that's the point where you stop accessing righteousness? If you access righteousness in salvation by believing in your heart and saying with your mouth, then wouldn't walking in righteousness be accessing it by believing in your heart and saying with your mouth? Absolutely. And that's the thing that establishes you. Paul goes on to talk about how that Jesus is more than capable of delivering us from the power of sin. But how are we going to do it? The whole purpose of telling us the benefits or the the, the deliverance that's available to us through Jesus, the whole purpose is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, present your body a living sacrifice. In other words, stop letting your body control you. Now, folks, that's going to be the key between childhood stage of maturity or spiritual development and a, and a mature man because spiritual children are body ruled. So what does he say? He says the whole purpose is present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's the means whereby you grow and develop spiritually. How are you going to do that? Verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's he saying? He's saying, change your thinking and your body will come in line. What happened from Paul, with Paul from chapter 7 to chapter 8? He renewed his mind and, quit becoming, and he stopped becoming a slave to his body. He renewed his mind and stopped being a slave to his body. Now, folks, look with me over to Romans chapter uh, 5 and verse 17. Let me show you something the Bible says that this righteousness will do for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. The preceding verses talk about the difference in, uh, or it talks about the origin of sin into the earth. It's when Adam sinned, whereby one man sinned, death entered into the world and... uh, uh, sin entered the world and death by sin. It's talking about Adam's sin. And then it goes by and, and it goes and talks about Jesus' one man action. God's got a, a principle of two men, a doctrine of two men. Adam's action or Adam's sin caused death to pass on the whole world. That's why we were born into death. We're uh, born into to spiritual death. We're born into, uh, well, let me say it this way. We're born into a world that is dominated by spiritual death. You're not spiritually dead when you come into this world until you come to the knowledge of right and wrong and choose wrong. But we're born into a world that's dominated by spiritual death. We're born into a world that's dominated by sin. Why? Because you sinned? No. Sin was here before you ever got here. Well, then what caused that to happen? Adam's sin. So that's the one man's action that caused the result, the negative result for the whole of the world. Then he talks about one man's action, Jesus, of being our substitute that brought redemption for the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 17, it's talking about Jesus. Wherefore, if by one man's offense, sin, Adam's sin, death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Now, folks, if something is a gift, you can't work for it. If something is a gift, you cannot work for it. 
it's impossible for you to work for a gift because if you, if, if, if you receiving something is based on you, then you can't call it a gift. I can't say to my kids, okay, here are your Christmas presents, now all you have to do is work for them. They stop being presents. And they start being payment. If it's a gift, you can't work for it. If you're working for it, it can't be a gift. So it says, For if by one man's offense, Adam's sin, death reigned by one, much more. Now folks, think about that for a minute. How absolute was Adam's sin in bringing death upon the world? Not one person was missed. From Adam on. Right? I mean, death absolutely ruled. Spiritual death absolutely ruled. The Bible says, the Holy Ghost is saying, much more. In other words, this, the second part, is much more absolute, much more real, much more complete than Adam's sin and the result of that. Much more, they which receive, remember God's made you able to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. But whether you receive or not, it's up to you. You're able to partake of it. Much more, they which receive two things, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Again, folks, if this is talking about just getting saved, the church would be a whole different animal than it is. If this was talking about just coming into the family of God and that would make us reign, then wouldn't the world look different than it does? I would submit to you that there are a lot of people that have been made righteous who are not partaking of the inheritance. And that's what Paul's trying to say. Paul is setting up the whole thing that he gets to in Romans chapter 12. Present your body a living sacrifice by renewing your mind to the truth. Renewing your mind to the knowledge of, of, of the Word of God. He's setting the whole thing up. He's saying, if Adam's sin absolutely caused death to reign, much more they which receive... By the way, the word receive is not just a one-time thing. It's a continuous word. It's a continuous action. They which receive the abundance of grace... Grace is God's favor. They which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying the key to reigning is to take hold of God's favor and righteousness continuously. Now compare that to what we read over in Isaiah 54 for verse 14. In righteousness you shall be established and oppression shall be far from you for you shall not fear. And from terror. Terror will be far from you either. Or two. And from terror, for it shall not come nigh thee. So it's saying you can be free from oppression and terror. Why? Because you don't fear. Why? Because you've taken hold of righteousness. Because you've taken hold of righteousness. You know why nothing the devil did in the world could stick to Jesus? Because he was righteous. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. I wonder if that ever means he woke up with a sore throat. Have you? Well, why didn't it stick? Because he was righteous. Well, what about times where Jesus didn't have enough? Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. It says he was hungry. Medical science tells us that's the last signal your body gives you before it starts shutting down. You'll start off, if you fast, you'll start off being hungry and then that hunger will fade for a while and then when the hunger comes back, it's your body saying, feed me now or it, or, the, or else. It says Jesus was hungry. Apparently, he had come to that stage. That's when the devil tempted him. It doesn't tell us the devil tempted him for 40 days. It says the devil came at his weakest point. He always does. And Jesus dealt with him three times by saying, it is written. In other words, he spoke the truth just like the Bible says a mature believer will do. He spoke the truth. He answered the devil's temptations three times by saying it is written. 
Apparently, Jesus believed in that confession stuff. (laughs) And then what happened? Then the Bible says the angels came and fed him. Why? Because he was a righteous man. Folks, if the Bible is to be accepted as truth, you decide for yourself. But if it's to be accepted as truth, the Bible is telling us very plainly that there is nothing, no physical law, no natural circumstance, nothing that can defeat or overcome righteousness. And that was given to you when you made Jesus the Lord of your life. It's walked in by your confession. Think of it from God's point of view. Now, I'm not suggesting this, but we all find ourselves in this position sometimes. Think about it from God's point of view. What would be the greatest example of His mercy where righteousness is concerned? For somebody to never miss it? That's what we aspire to. That's what we should aspire to. John said that. He said, my little children, I write these things to you that you sin not. So it's possible. But from God's point of view, what would be the greatest example of His mercy? For somebody to get saved and never, never miss it? Live all their lives never missing it? Well, that seems almost pie in the sky to us. How's anybody going to live like that? Or would it be an example of God's mercy for us in the middle of falling to the desires of our flesh, falling to the temptations of the world, missing it according to what we know the Bible says to do for us to stand up in the midst of that failure and say, Thank you, Father, that according to your word I am righteous. Which one do you think would make the devil the maddest? You get somebody that never misses it throughout their life, the devil's going to be looking for places to trip them up. His focus is going to be, let's make them fall, let's make them stumble. But you get somebody that in the midst of failing, in Romans chapter 7 experience, Paul's same experience, where from his heart he wants to do the right thing, but from his flesh he's doing the wrong thing, to stand up in the midst of that and say, Jesus was made sin for me so that I, through his sacrifice, am made righteous. That's got to make the devil go crazy. Well, the devil's already crazy, but you know what I mean. Anybody that rebels against God has got to be crazy. That would make him pull out hair if he's got it. Because then he would know, I can't get this guy. Even if I make him stumble, he still knows who he is. The devil knows there's only one end possible for that guy. And that is he's going to grow to the place where he's not going to yield his body to the action of sin any longer. The devil knows he's sunk with that guy. That's why Paul was such a problem to him. Paul found out the key to victory. Folks, the key to victory is speaking the word in the midst of your problem. The key to healing is speaking the word on healing in the midst of sickness. The key to prosperity is speaking the word of provision in the midst of lack. The key to deliverance is speaking freedom, speaking the fact that you've been set free by the Word of God in the midst of what seems to be binding you. That will bring results every time. The key to victory where righteousness is concerned is to speak righteousness even if and or when you miss it. That guy is always going to grow and rise to the top. Because he's acting on what the Bible says to do. What keeps us from doing that? Well, we don't feel like it. We fail to confess healing because we don't feel healed. Nowhere you're going to find in the Bible where it says confess that you're healed because you feel like it. What do you need to confess healing when you feel like it for? There's no problem. Well, I just don't know if I can confess that all of my needs are met according to his riches and glory, Pastor Mike, because I've got bills stacked up just high as you can see. That's exactly the time you do need to confess what the Bible says. Because the Bible says that faith will change the circumstance. If you're waiting for the circumstance to line up, you don't need any faith to change anything. And faith is the thing that pleases God. I I hesitate to say this because some people are going to take this wrong, but I hope you understand my heart in saying it. 
God receives glory when you're messing up and respond by confessing the word. I've seen some people, bless their hearts, they talk and act like that they never commit sin. And so really, what do they need God for? Jesus talked about this in prayer. He talked about how that the, the Pharisee would go to prayer and he'd say, Oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that publican, that sinner over there. But the sinner was over there. He says, Father, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Jesus said, Which one do you think whose prayer pleased the Father? The sinner's. In the same way, folks, I'm here to tell you from personal experience, I think it's the same thing Paul's trying to con uh, convey to us as well. When I have been in the biggest problems where I've yielded to the wrong things, not walked in love, whatever the case was. See, when you say things like this, you can just see people working. What sin did he commit? <laughs> Bertha, are you sure we're supposed to be in this church? This guy's a sinner. Well, I might as well just tell you. I've told you before, but I might as well just tell you. I was guilty of the sin of murder. I was just killing people right and left. <laughs> See, people always want to focus on the sin. It doesn't matter. Sin is sin. See, compared to you, my sin is real small. But as far as God's concerned, it's still sin. But in the midst of that, in the midst of feeling terrible about what you've done, when you stand up and say, According to God's Word, not because I feel like it, but according to God's Word, Jesus was made sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Devil, in spite of what you tripped me up to do, I am righteous. I've had as much of the, the, of the presence of God on me in those times as any other times I can experience. I've had as much of the presence of God on me in, in those times as when I've laid hands on the sick and seen miraculous results. In some cases, a greater sense of God's presence when I did that. Folks, that's how you appropriate faith. Or, I'm sorry, that's, it's by faith that you appropriate righteousness. There's a huge difference between what you are, who you've been made, and what you do. The devil wants to talk to you about what you've done. You talk to him about who you are. That's the righteousness that establishes you and keeps you from being moved. It's a gift. It's a gift. Folks, if somebody, if, you're, if, you're, if your most loved one gave you the gift of a car and you were delighted to have it, thanked them profusely, but never used it, how would that please the one that gave it to you? But on the other hand, if you take righteousness and understand how precious it is and utilize it, how? By speaking the truth. No matter what action takes place, no matter what the devil trips you up to do, no matter what mistakes you and I make, but speak the word of righteousness over yourself in the midst of those times, I'll guarantee you God smiles on your life. I've found to be true for myself. God smiles on your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that Jesus was made sin. Who knew no sin, Jesus was made sin for us. So that we might be or were made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I thank you, Father, that that righteousness is a gift. We can't work for it but we can walk in it. We can walk in it by faith, speaking the truth in the midst of the circumstance. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, before we go this morning, <clears throat> I have an invitation for you. And that is, if you've been hearing us talk about righteousness and coming to Jesus and making Jesus the Lord of your life, if you've never done that, that's the way that you appropriate or receive, take hold of, the gift of righteousness. Righteousness means right standing with God. If you know that you're not right with God because you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there's no better time for you to do that than right now. 
So if you're here this morning, we we'll say, Pastor Mike, I want to come into the family of God. I want to take hold of everything that Jesus did for me. I want to become righteous. I want to lose this sense of guilt before my Heavenly Father. That's available to you right now. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. If that's your desire, I want you just to slip your hand up right where you are. You're just identifying yourself as one to be prayed for. That's all we're going to do. We're going to lead you in a prayer. So if you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life this morning, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand right where you are. You're just simply asking us to pray, and that's what we'll do. All right, I have another invitation. You may be here this morning, and you may have been those that we talked about that go back and forth. Am I righteous? Have I lost my righteousness? I've lived such a terrible life. I've made so many mistakes. Whatever the case is. If you know that even though you made Jesus the Lord of your life, you've gone your own way, tried to make your own path, and that never works for any of us. But you want to return to Him. You want to return to that place where it was just like when you first were saved. Where you know that you're back on track with God. You know you've restored fellowship with Him. The Bible tells the story of the prodigal son who left his father's house, took his inheritance and squandered it away. Got to the place where he came to himself and he realized even the servants live better than I'm living. The servants in my father's house are better than my life. So he decided to come back. What he didn't know is his father had been looking for him every day since he left to return. His father fell on his neck, kissed him, clothed him, put the ring back on his finger, restored him to fellowship as his son because he had never stopped being his son. That's what returning to fellowship with God is like. If you want to return to fellowship with your heavenly father, we want to include you in this prayer as well. If that's your desire, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to come back to my Heavenly Father. Let Him guide my life instead of me doing it for myself. I want you to raise your hand where you are and we'll pray for you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Are there others? Yes, thank you, sir. Yes, several. All right. Let's do it this way then. Why don't we all stand together? And let's say a prayer together. We'll pray for and with these that want to rededicate themselves to their lives to the Lord. Close your eyes and say this prayer from your heart. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that nothing can take me out of your hand. No sin I've committed. No wrongdoing on my part. Nothing can take me out of your hand. And you love me today just like you did when I was born again. And you see me in the same way as when I was saved. Thank you, Father. I confess my sin before you. I confess that I've chosen my path instead of yours. Your word says that because I confess that, you're faithful to forgive me and to cleanse me from every unrighteous action. I thank you, Father, that I stand before you pure and clean, righteous in your sight, as if I had never made a mistake. Thank you, Father. Though that may be hard for my mind to accept, I believe from my heart that it's true because your word says so. Thank you, Father, that you never leave me, you never forsake me, and greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Thank you, Father. That because I am righteous, I am more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that because I am righteous, I am an overcomer. I walk in victory 
I reign in life through Jesus Christ, my righteousness. Now lift your hands and thank Him because that's true. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. No problems too big because we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. No circumstance too difficult. Because we're righteous, you live in us. And we reign in life. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Well, say it one more, with me one more time. I am, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God bless you. Have a great day.